Well, this morning uh, marks our final Advent study in Matthew chapter 24. Um, as we've been considering the significance of the arrival of Jesus during this Christmas season, we've focused our attention uh, during our times of study specifically on Jesus' second coming, on the second Advent. And we're in good company as we do that because, as we've mentioned week in and week out, down through the history of the Christian church, the celebration of Jesus' first coming, uh, the baby born to Mary in the manger, uh, the celebration of Jesus' first coming has long been directly connected to a celebratory expectation of Jesus' second coming at Christmas time. So the one who came as our humble Redeemer will come again as uh, our glorious victor, and we look forward to that. And so we've been talking about the Christmas connection to Jesus' second coming over these last few weeks. Uh, but just to illustrate it again, I want to share with you two short uh, old Christian prayers. The first is from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, an old version, and then the, the second is from a Lutheran prayer book. So two different traditions within Protestantism. But listen to these prayers. They're both a prayer for Christmas Day in the, in the liturgy. The first one is the Anglican prayer. Listen to this. O God, who makes us glad with the yearly remembrance of the birth of thine only Son, Jesus Christ, grant that, we, grant that as we joyfully receive him for our Redeemer, so may we with sure confidence behold him when he shall come to be our judge. Okay, so, so we receive Jesus coming into the world as our Redeemer, and that compels us in prayer here to look forward with confidence to the day when Jesus is going to return to be our judge. That's an Anglican prayer for Christmas Day. Here's a Lutheran prayer for Christmas Day. I beseech you, gracious Father, keep me until the end in true knowledge of my Redeemer, that with the holy angels I may rejoice at his nativity, and on the last day when he comes again, may I behold him in glory and majesty world without end. Amen. So, so we hear this connection in the prayers of the saints who've gone before us. The first coming of Christ, his nativity, urges us to look ahead to his return. And so that's what we've been doing in a particular way from Matthew chapter 24. Uh, Matthew 24 begins what is referred to as the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives, and he's giving his disciples instruction around the subject of the end of the age. Uh, in fact, we've seen what, what Jesus is doing is actually answering his disciples' questions about the destruction of the temple, the timing of his return, and the end of the age. Uh, so, so we remind ourselves that in the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus had been speaking about the future destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and his disciples have so closely associated the destruction of the temple with the end of the age, with the, with the final day of the Lord, when Jesus comes back. They've so associated these things that when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, they ask when this will happen, the destruction of the temple, and what will be a sign then of the end of the age and of, of Christ's return. That's Matthew 24, verse 3. And, and Jesus doesn't respond to his disciples by giving them uh, dates and charts and his favorite uh, YouTube channel with, with end times prophecy or anything like that. Instead, he provides them with truth that they'll need to actually persevere faithfully while they wait. And you remember from a couple weeks ago in our studies how Jesus gave his disciples this persevering truth for waiting in general categories in verses uh, 4 to 14. So there Jesus has said that what's going to mark the time between now and when I return 
what's going to mark that time is going to be things like wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, uh, persecution of faithful Christian believers, and also the gospel is going to spread during that time while you wait. So, so in between now and when I come back, this is what it's going to look like. Jesus has said there's going to be this natural and national upheaval, gospel spread, all of these kinds of things. And these things don't mean the end is at hand. Instead, don't be alarmed, Jesus says. All of this just means that you're in this time of waiting. So Jesus is giving persevering truth. The world is going to go on in its turmoil, and, and turmoil is not a cause for panic or, or any kind of silly end times predictions. No, instead what the turmoil indicates is that it's the, it's the meantime. It's the waiting time. My return is, is not yet, Jesus says. And then, after speaking along those lines about turmoil in general in verses 4 to 14, Jesus begins to answer his disciples' question, particularly with regard to the destruction of the temple, more particularly in verse 15 to 28 or so, where, where he speaks to a specific time of turmoil in Jerusalem's history. And there's some more significant, specific detail in that section where in those verses Jesus is referring to the events of the Jewish-Roman wars that culminated in a siege of Jerusalem, which ended in a great deal of destruction, including the temple finally being destroyed in A.D. 70. So within the framework of, of turmoil, as history goes forward, while faithful disciples are waiting for the return of Jesus, there's going to be this specific instance of hardship, among others, that Jesus speaks to where the temple is going to be destroyed. That's verses 15 to 28. It'll be a unique time of difficulty, as has never been and never will be again for the, for the people, the populace of Jerusalem. Uh, and then following that whole course of history of, of natural and national disasters and all of those things, gospel spread, persecution, following all of those things, Jesus says in verses 29 to 31, he will then return. That's when he's coming back. And his return will be um, demonstrably glorious and unmistakable. Riding on the clouds, he'll be coming. And, and we looked at that last week in verses 29 to 30, where Jesus speaks about that. Uh, and then we get into our verses this morning. So, so Jesus has, has taught about what it will be like while we wait for his return. And he's spoken about what the manner of his return will be like. You know, the Son of Man's going to come riding on the clouds with, with, with the hosts of heaven, great glory, all of these things. And then we get into our section of verses this morning where Jesus shifts again, all with the intention of properly preparing his disciples for their perseverance. So now in verses 32 to 35, Jesus shifts the topic a bit to what his return will be like in terms of timing, in terms of timing. So if we were going to outline Matthew 24 so far, we would really have three words getting us to this point. Jesus speaks to waiting, and then he speaks to returning, his returning, and now he's going to speak to his timing, uh, the timing of his return. And so, and so this is what we're going to think about together from verses 32 to 35, the timing of Jesus' return. So you can just keep an eye on, on those verses in particular, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll study these things together. Um, we can set the context just by saying timing can have such a significant impact on us in all different parts of our life, can't it? So, uh, you know, when Christmas is a few weeks out, at least for me, that kind of timing means I don't really need to worry about too much yet. A few weeks out is good to go. However, when Christmas becomes uh, nearer, like maybe a few days away, timing changes. And uh, that also changes everything in terms of my, my panic feeling with regard to presence and those sorts of things. Timing matters. Timing affects us. You, you time that important conversation with your manager at work just right. 
Right? Timing for vacations and, and the schedules that are involved, that can be tricky. Timing for family visits over the holidays. How much time is too much? How much time is too little? Right? Timing is crucial to the way our lives are ordered. And the importance of timing carries through to how we think about the second advent of Christ as well. We need to have a proper understanding of timing. And as Jesus speaks to the timing of his return, just as we would expect, we see that his instructional priority is not to give us an understanding that is centered on an exactness of dates. The disciples were actually initially asking for some exactness, weren't they? When will the end of the age be? In our own day, as in every age, some figure will appear on the scene certain of the exactness with regard to the end of the world. But, but this instruction from Jesus about timing, uh, the timing of his return, it isn't centered on exactness. In fact, speaking in the truly humble condition of Jesus' full humanity, uh, just down in verse 36 from here, he doesn't even know the day or the hour, he says. That's for God the Father to know. So, so what Jesus gives us is not truth for precision, but truth for perseverance here. Uh, this is what we need to know about the timing of Jesus' return if we're going to keep waiting faithfully. So with that in mind, as we look at the text, uh, we can see verses 32 to 35 have three things to tell us about the timing of the second advent. And, and we're, going to, we're going to take those then under, under these headings. I'll just give them to you if it's helpful. But first of all, in verses 32 to 33, we have something about Jesus' present nearness or his coming's present nearness. And then in verse 34, we have particular experience spoken about there. And then in verse 35, we have fixed assurance. So that's just how we'll take these. Uh, we have present nearness, particular experience, and fixed assurance, all with regard to the timing of Jesus coming back. Uh, so we'll start in verses 32 and 33, where Jesus speaks about the timing of his return uh, with, with language around present nearness. In fact, I'll just read those two verses again, 32 and 33. Jesus says, learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near at the door. It's actually a plural there. At the, we could say at the gates. Think of some, uh, the king entering the city right through the gates. Um. Sometimes in life we encounter two things that simultaneously coexist, but might at first seem like they shouldn't. Uh, so, for example, I don't know much about cooking, but I do know one of my favorite things for dinner is French toast, which is a breakfast food, breakfast for dinner. Right? That doesn't technically sound like it should go together, but who here would argue against a good breakfast for dinner? Right? Or how about that friendship? that's so sturdy, you can actually sit in absolute silence with the person and still be refreshed in each other's company. It doesn't seem like it should go together, but silence and a sturdy friendship is something that can be very encouraging. Or what about the fact that, that it's the people who are often most strong, most, the most sturdy people you know are often the ones who are the most quick to ask for help. It doesn't seem like it should go together, but it does, doesn't it? Strong people, sturdy people tend to be willing to ask for help. They're confident in doing that kinds of thing. So there, there are all these elements we encounter in life where what doesn't seem like it should go together goes together really well. And when it comes to the subject matter of Jesus' return, we have one of these surprising pairings in this passage. And I'll explain what I mean. We've already studied through what Jesus has said about a time of waiting. All right, so, so while we wait for Jesus, 
There are going to be wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, earthquakes, all these kinds of things. And that's exactly what's taken place. Uh, for the last 2,000 years, this period of waiting for Christ's return has been marked by exactly these kinds of things, natural and national calamities. And as Jesus said back in verse 6, as these things go on, they indicate to us that the end is not yet. This is a waiting time. Time's going on. Now, from our perspective, we can look back on all of that, and it makes us think, if, if, you know, if these kinds of things mark out the waiting, and it's no small amount of waiting that's happened at that, 2,000 years of waiting now, if these kinds of occurrences mark out the waiting, the last time I've checked, nothing has changed. National and natural disasters still keep the news feeds very, very busy. So if that's what marks out our time of waiting for Jesus, his return must be very, very, very far off. It must be a long way off, maybe another 2,000 years, maybe more, who knows. And while Jesus affirms the nature of the, of the turmoil and the place of waiting in the years for his return, there's also something that goes along with that, which he wants his disciples to be particularly mindful of, namely the nearness of his return. Okay, so two things go together that don't really seem like they should go together in that in between the first and second advent of Christ, we have this long period of waiting, which Jesus tells us is going to be a period of waiting. You see this stuff, you know you're waiting. And then he also can speak to the nearness of his return. And so here Jesus is doing that in this parable uh, that begins there in verse 32. In fact, if you're reading from the CSB, uh, the word translated as lesson there in verse 32 is, is just the word for parable. So Jesus gives this word picture now to illustrate this concept of nearness in terms of the nearness of his coming that we need to start to think about as well. Not just the fact we're in this period of waiting. We also need to be thinking about the nearness of Jesus's return. And so the picture that Jesus gives is that of a fig tree blossoming and, and sprouting leaves in spring, which indicates summer is approaching. So Jesus is saying here that, that just like we know sprouting leaves indicate uh, springtime is here, and that means the next season is summer, summer's coming, so too, Jesus says in verse 33, when you see these things, recognize that Jesus' is coming is near. So, so in other words... All that Jesus has been talking about, these things, the natural and national disasters take place, the gospel spreading, as all these things Jesus has been talking about take place, they indicate now two realities as we've gone through this text. On the one hand, when these things happen, they don't indicate the end, but they show us that we're in this time of waiting. The end is not yet, back in verse 6. Now here, when we see these things happening, wars, rumors of wars, and so on, these things are also indicators of nearness. The nearness of Christ's return. So you see how we have these two elements to put together here. There's the waiting and there's the nearness that don't really seem like they would fit together at first. But actually, as we think this out carefully with our Bibles open, we, we, can, we can understand what Jesus is saying here. Um, so so let's, let's work this out a bit. In terms of this idea of the nearness of Christ's return, uh, first of all, it's helpful to know that New Testament authors speak uh, very freely about, about the nearness of the Lord's return. For example, James in chapter 5 of his letter, he says the Lord's coming is near. The Apostle Peter in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, he makes a, a similar statement. He says the end of all things is near. Right? And New Testament writers can speak this way because nearness categories theologically are different from nearness categories in our everyday lives. And, and, and part of this has to do with how the scriptures speak to the last days or the end of the age. 
Um, so, for example, if I say something like, these are the last days until Christmas to a five-year-old, if I say that to them, these are the last days until Christmas, we can be sure that the five-year-old is thinking in terms of a day or two, and then we get to open presents. That's what last days mean. But when the Bible speaks in last days categories, things are different. In the scriptures, the last days begin with the coming of Christ and extend until the day of his return. Right, so we get this in places like Hebrews chapter 1, where the letter of Hebrews starts by saying, in the past, God spoke to his people in different ways, but, and what he says next, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. The last days begin with the first advent, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or when the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he can reference what took place earlier and earlier epochs of God's redemptive work in history. So Paul can reference things that took place in the life of Israel in the Old Testament. And then he can say something like 1 Corinthians 10, These things were written for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. Class days. So in a theological sense, as we're, as we're on the other side of Christ's earthly ministry and death and, and resurrection and ascension, on the other side of that, the scriptures speak to our place in history, this inter-advent period, as the last days. So, so that informs our understanding of the concept of nearness when we speak to Christ's return. We, we, we see the world going on as it is, and this doesn't mean that Jesus is going to return any second. There is this element of waiting but we do realize that we are in the last stage or the last season, if you like, of God's redemptive historical plan before the season in which Jesus comes again, before the time of Jesus' second coming. So, so Jesus is near in that sense, in, a, in the sense that we're in springtime and summer's next, right? Jesus is near in the sense that Jesus' return in glory to rescue his saints and the final judgment is the next main thing that's going to happen in God's historical plan for the world. We're near to that. And so Jesus is saying here, just like the fig tree indicates the advancing seasons, see what's going on around you now as the advancing of history toward Jesus' return. So the waiting, the wars and rumors of wars must take place. Uh, the, the spread of the good news of the kingdom of God, which was inaugurated in a sense when Jesus showed up, the gospels going out to the world, all of these things must take place, but they're indicators of the final phase, if you like. The return of Christ is, 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 is imminent. Christ is at the door. He's coming next, you see. And as we read our Bibles, we do see that, that we can think this out fairly well and in ways that are, that are balanced and reasonable, even recognizing the... Uh, the, the difficulty and the bigness of some of, these, some of these time indicators in the Scripture. So, for example, the Thessalonian believers, they were having trouble around the fact that maybe Christ has come or they've, they've had those who have, have died, Christian believers who have died, and they're, they're worried about seeing them again. Did Christ already return? The Thessalonians have trouble in various ways. And so one of the things that Paul does for them is he, he gives them some indicators that we have throughout Scripture that there is going to be uh, an escalation, for example, with the rise of a man of lawlessness. Paul speaks about that. John speaks in the similar terms where there's a whole bunch of antichrists as history goes on. These people who are against Christ, maybe political rulers, turning in, they go on and on, they come around and around again as history goes on. There will one day be a more climactic figure who brings about a unique amount of destruction, persecution, these kinds of things. Um, at a future time in history, th th this is going to happen. Um, but that hasn't happened right now. So, so with things like that in mind, we can honestly say that Jesus isn't going to return in the next five minutes. 
We need to have our, our theology sorted on this kind of thing because there's still stuff to unfold in big senses that the, that the Bible has revealed to us. He's not going to return in the next five minutes, for one thing, because that man of lawlessness, there's this unique individual on the scene of history who, who will appear but hasn't yet. However, while we're not going to say Jesus is coming any second, we could be very comfortable saying Jesus may return in my lifetime. These things could begin to unfold. Or we can also be very comfortable saying Jesus may return in another 2,000 years. But all that to say, we're not speaking in terms of our human economies of time here for the Lord's return when we're talking about nearness. As, as Peter puts it in 2 Peter 3, with the Lord, one day is like a 1,000 years and a 1,000 years like one day. So here we're speaking in the context of God's design and timing for history. And while this is a period of waiting... The end is not yet. There's a period of waiting. We can also say this is a time of anticipation. The end is near. Not, not any second near, but maybe within my lifetime near. Or maybe not. Maybe longer still. But there's this nearness. Because while we're waiting, the simultaneous truth is that the very next part of God's plan for history is that His Son is going to come riding on the clouds with the hosts of heaven in glory. That's next. So that's, that's the next season. Right now the buds are blooming. It's springtime. The gospel's going. We see these things happening. They indicate to us that next comes summer. And so, and, so, and so what does this mean for us? The nearness that Jesus speaks about here. Well, if we had the time, we would work our way in detail through the next section of verses in the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is driving home one main point of application in light of all of this, and that main point of application that Jesus is making throughout the rest of his discourse here is stay alert. That's the application point. And we talked about this a little bit last week. When the, when the waiting gets long, the drowsiness can set in. Right? But, but there's not just waiting, there's also this nearness element. So Jesus will say things as his teaching continues on here. He'll, he'll say things like, stay alert in your faithful service. It may seem like Jesus won't ever return, but the day will come. His return is the next main thing in God's plan for the history of the cosmos. Right? So be alert, Jesus says to us. Don't, don't fall off in offering your life and talents and resources and ambitions to Christ as his servants. Um, and we just see how Jesus unpacks this as we, you can let your eye run down the rest of the teaching there, even into chapter 5, where Jesus says in verses 36 to 44 next, basically, don't be unprepared. Right? Verses 45 to 51, he says, don't be lazy and indulgent, because I'm coming. Right? Verses 1 to 13 of chapter 15, or chapter 25, he says, don't fall asleep. And then in 14 to 30 of chapter 25, he says, don't bury your talents and quit using the gifts God's given you, because he's coming back. Now you see, the practical application of the fact that we're living in the springtime season of redemptive history is that while we might have some waiting to do, we need to do that waiting with faithful, expectant anticipation because summer's near. He's coming. So it's just worth asking ourselves. In fact, I was reflecting on this with, with Jason earlier this week. It's worth asking myself, how am I doing living like Jesus is coming back? Will I be rejoicing when he comes back? Or will I be immediately convicted about how lazy I've become when I see His glory revealed across the sky? Am I prepared? Am I, am I watchful in holiness and service? Or am I drowsy? Has the, has the waiting period suffocated the truth of His near return in my heart? We ask ourselves those questions. Have you, have you felt the impulse just to ease up in your living for Christ in these days? 
You may have been at it for a while after all, and maybe it's time just to ease up a bit. Take a breather. The Lord knows you've put in a lot of time. Relax the gospel efforts in your life. But no, we must never think that way. We need to wake up. I mean, to say wake up to our own hearts at times. Don't get complacent with sin, Jared. Don't grow disinterested in holiness. Don't become lax in living as lights in the world for Jesus. Don't go com grow complacent in public worship and drift away from participation in church community. The present nearness of Christ removes my lethargy. He's going to come back, which is the very next thing in redemptive history according to God's plan as it unfolds. And when my master returns, I want to be rejoicing, diligently serving, and ready to see him when he comes. He saved me. Right? This is the gospel compulsion. He bled and died to remove my eternal guilt and purchase eternity in his presence. And when he comes back, I want him to find me busy, not drowsy. So when we think about the second advent, when we think about Jesus coming again and the timing of that reality, we can think in terms of waiting, but we also need to think in terms of nearness. And then there are two more elements here. And we'll just take these much more quickly. But, uh, but if you look at the text, what we have next with regard to the timing of, of Jesus' return uh, is some teaching about a particular experience. We'll, we'll put it that way. Uh, verse, verse 34, which I'll just read that again for us. Verse 34, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation, in other words, the generation of disciples who, who he's speaking to right there in this discourse, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have taken place. Until all these things take place. Um, so it's probably obvious that this verse has caused some interpretive trouble at times. Uh, it's, it's because of this verse that some have viewed this whole passage of teaching. Some have viewed all of this uh, in, in, in thinking that Jesus is referring to something that's going to happen and, and climax historically instead of something that would apply to the now. Like all this took place in the first century because of this comment that Jesus makes here about the generation. Um, this generation will certainly not pass away till all these things have taken place. In fact, down through church history, some have even gone so far as to say that there's been a secret return of Christ already. They try to lump the return of Christ in with all these things. Um, he's spoken of his return here, so, so it must have taken place in some secret kind of way in the first century since Jesus tells his disciples that their generation will experience all these things. Now, just speaking about the secret return of Jesus, logical, theological reading, we know we can't go that far, not least of all because these things, as Jesus uses that phrase almost technically throughout the, the, the Olivet Discourse, these things refer to what happens before he comes back. They don't include his coming back, they happen before he comes back. So, for so many reasons, but for that logical, good reader reason alone, no secret return of Jesus or anything like that, right? Uh, but we do recognize this is a, this is a difficult thing to, to sort through. We have to think about it well. What does it mean uh, that this first century generation is, is the one experiencing all that Jesus is talking about? Does it mean it doesn't apply to us? What do we do with this? Um, well, well, when we get right down to it, as we think about the flow of Jesus' teaching here, uh, it does become maybe a little simpler than it might at first seem. So, so Jesus has been speaking, remember, broadly about wars and rumors of wars, uh, persecution of the saints, gospel spread, all of those things in verses 4 to 14. These things are going to take place before he returns. And then he's spoken, so within that wide scope of history, of a particular time within that wide scope in the history of 
the first generation of believers in Jerusalem, when there's going to be specific and unique trouble as a result of the Jewish-Roman wars, Jerusalem's going to be under siege. You know, pray that it's not the Sabbath, because when you're fleeing, this is going to make it more difficult, all of these kinds of things. So Jesus has spoken to a particular expression of that kind of turmoil that is going to take place in the first century. It was a dark time in Jerusalem. And this generation that Jesus addresses here, the first century generation, in a sense then, did experience all these things. They experienced the troubling kinds of things that Jesus has been talking about all through this passage, particularly located in the Jewish-Roman wars for them, among other things. We know the apostles are going to be persecuted significantly as time goes on. And so, and so when we read about the first, that generation experiencing these things, in that sense, they did take place. You can read Josephus, the historian who speaks about earthquakes that took place, even false messiahs that were circulating about during that first century, like Jesus talks about here. And, and, so, and so just like experiences that are, that are similar take place in every generation while we wait, Jesus is telling this first generation, you're going to experience the, the, the fullness of what I'm talking about here. They're going to face all the stuff that Jesus is talking about, and, and especially as we think about the Jerusalem trouble that they're going to have. Um, but, it, but as we put ourselves uh, in, in the context of Jesus' teaching here, we recognize that what he is addressing is a particular situation, a particular experience of difficulty that fits in the whole grand scheme of how he says history is going to kind of cyclically go. There's a unique expression here in Jerusalem, but down through the ages, what do we see? Well, Time goes by and, and there's undulations, but there's experiences of persecution and wars and, 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 and rumors of wars and natural disasters. Different generations face different expressions of these kinds of things. But this just does go on and on and on. And so this is actually a reminder to us that in the particularity of, of, of experience that Jesus is addressing here in the context of first century believers, there is also a universality to our common experience as Christian believers while we wait. There, there are particular expressions of wars, rumors of wars, deception, all of these kinds of things that go on. Um, just like there are acute times of persecution, all, all of these kinds of things. Uh, so the description of history as it goes, goes by here, uh, by Jesus, it, it's, it's not a cold evaluation in that he just says, you know, whatever will be, will be, and this is just good luck with all that, right? It's a description of things moving forward, which manifests in the particular experience of his followers. For his first century followers, they're going to have a unique experience of some of these things. But in those experiences, the Lord continues to preserve his own until the final day, just like he does with us. Right? And, and so this is so important to remember, because sometimes we can hear things uh, from, from people like, I, I, I can't imagine raising children in the age we live in now. Things are so dark. Or maybe from younger people, we hear something like, I can't imagine having kids here in this time, in this age, in this place, because of how difficult it would be to follow Jesus now. To which we just need to be able to reply, each generation has their experience of waiting. And in each generation, the Lord is over the timing and events in such a way that his people will always and without fail be preserved. And not just that, but they'll also be fruitful gospel witnesses as the message of the kingdom of Christ goes to the ends of the world. And so, and so this little verse gives us that reminder. Each generation has its share of particular experiences along the lines of these things. Right? The first century of, of Christian believers in Jerusalem did, as does the 21st century generation of Christian believers in Portland. But we're not afraid, in part, 
because we have this persevering truth as we think our way through this teaching. Hardships are going to come, verse 6. This is going to be the way it is. The gospel will spread, verse 14. The elect, the people of God, will be saved, verse 22. And Jesus will come back, verse 29. And so we can, we can just be comforted by this. In this world you will have trouble, Jesus says, but do not fear. I've overcome the world. And so we can just renew our hearts in this kind of thing, thinking, thinking through this. Have you, have you been fearing lately? Maybe you've been fearing for yourself, for your kids, right? for your grandkids, for the kids you hope to have someday, right? for others whom you love. We can remind ourselves of this truth. History moves forward according to God's design, always. God's people are preserved for God's mission and salvation glory, and the king will return, and nothing can ever stop any of that from happening. Which is exactly what Jesus says in verse 35. If you just look at verse 35 next. Jesus speaks there to a fixed assurance. Verse 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Right, so here Jesus speaks in a way that references the permanence of God's covenantal faithfulness and His promises. Right? Listen, for example, to the Lord speak in Isaiah 51. Sounds very similar uh, to what Jesus says here. Maybe we're getting a, a paraphrase of this from Jesus. Look up to the heavens, the Lord says, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish like smoke, the earth will wear out like a garment, and its inhabitants will die like gnats. But my salvation will last forever, and my righteousness will never be shattered. That sounds very similar to what Jesus is saying here. The earth's going to pass away, but my word about the purposes of salvation and judgment and God's plan for the ages will not pass away. There'll come a day when the created order as we know it will pass away. It will be changed. It will be renewed. It will be regenerated. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. What is old will pass away. We sang about that in one of our songs this morning. But what will never change and what will never need to be remade or renewed or restated is the truth of Christ. The, the word of Christ about salvation history and his certain return is more sturdy than the mountains and more sure than the sun rising day after day. So this Christmas time, it, it repays us to reflect on, on how many words we hear, we take in throughout the year. How many messages. How many promises, how many assurances, how many words of instruction and correction and redirection and encouragement. Some words are good and helpful, but we've also learned that some words don't stand. Some words just aren't true. Many words fail. But the word of Christ is not like that. It is the unfailing divine speech of God himself. So to quote Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades. But what? The word of our God remains forever. So the word that speaks of trouble we'll face as followers of Jesus, that's a sure word. And the word that speaks of gospel spread, which will take place across the world while we wait, that's a sure word. And the word that promises Jesus' return, that's a sure word too. And how do we know? What evidence do we have uh, to underpin all of this assurance? Well, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the word was given, wasn't it? A son will be born who will rescue us from the curse of sin. And that word from the Lord, that promise from God was proved at the first advent and sealed in the blood of Christ's cross and vindicated in the glory of his resurrection. The God, this God is the one who keeps his promises, who does what he says he'll do. And now here we are in a season of spring looking forward to summer, looking forward to the second advent when our master, redeemer and friend is going to return in great glory to gather us to himself and into an eternity of joy unending. And we know his word is sure because his cross has proved it. 
What he says will come to pass will come to pass because he's proved himself faithful to his word. So there will come a day when Jesus will return to make the fullness of his redemption blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Until then, we wait, knowing that the day is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We take great comfort in that. Let's pray together. So, Father, we do ask that we would be encouraged by your truth. Uh, Lord Jesus, we know that your coming is near. Uh, we, we would never be so prideful as to think we could predict timing, timing that you yourself speak to and the humility of your earthly ministry is not knowing. Uh, but Lord, we do know that your ti the timing of your coming is near and we also need to be diligent while we wait. We pray that you'll help us in these things, that we would be found faithful upon your return, rejoicing in the gospel work you've called us to engage in in this life, Lord. And we look forward to the, to the glory that you bring with you and the, and the rejoicing of all your saints on that final day. And until then, we pray that we would remain faithful and persevering by the power of the Holy Spirit, which you promised to us. We trust your word is sure. In your name we pray. Amen.